Uh, two things that will make for a bad beginning, upside-down Bible, and if you notice uh, your handout, it says what the lights says about you, uh, bad subject-verb agreement, totally on me. It should be singularly, while we edit the handout right off the bat, starting with the title, the very first thing I type uh, in it should be light singular, what the light says about you. So I know inspires a lot of confidence. Um, let me have you turn to John chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at a, just a small section, verses 16 through 21. And if you remember, you know, episode after episode, John is recording what's going on in the life of Jesus, what he teaches, what he does, his explanation for who he is and why he's here and what he's going to do. And my prayer week after week has been just that as we encounter the book, you'll, you will encounter the person. So, you know, on some level, you need a good church. On some level, there are lots of things that you need, but you don't need anything like you need uh, Jesus. So a couple of things while you're making your way to John 3, and we're, we'll start in verse 16. A couple of things about the passage that are worth uh, taking note of before we begin one is that this passage touches on your relationship with reality. Okay, we'll, see, we'll flesh this out a little bit more later, but in terms of just how you see reality, uh, do you embrace what's true? Do you embrace the facts? Are you willing to see them? Because, you know, our, our, our relationship to reality is an uneasy one. It's, you know, because reality is tough. It's severe. And so what you see some people do is they, they try to think about reality all the time and, the, you know, they gnaw on it. And you see what other people do is they try to avoid thinking about reality at all because it's kind of a downer. Uh, but nobody deals with it perfectly. It's, you know, it's too much. It's a lot, there's a lot there and it's heavy. So we'll get into this more as we end, but this passage does have some bearing on just your relationship with reality. Second thing what we're going to talk about actually arises out of a conversation, maybe the most famous conversation that Jesus has, uh, with Nicodemus, a guy named Nicodemus. He's a spiritual leader in Israel. I mean, and he's got elite status. He's somebody who's you know, a member of the ruling class. He's seen as a, uh, somebody who's a spiritual leader and an accomplished teacher, and he's recognized publicly that way. And so out of this conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus is the one who initiates with Jesus. And he sees something in Jesus. He, matter of fact, it's really clear. He sees the hand of God on Jesus because he tells him right away, he comes by night, and he says to him, we know that you're a teacher from God. And so he sees that. He sees the hand of God on him, but at this point, he doesn't see any more than that. And while Nicodemus seems really interested in what Jesus' status is, Jesus talks about what Nicodemus is status is. He starts talking about what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. And so he's, he's really disrupting all these assumptions that Nicodemus would make about it because Nicodemus, given his social status and how religious he is, he just assumes he's in. And Jesus says, listen, if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God, if anybody is going to enter into the kingdom of God, what has to happen in you is you have to be somebody you're not now. There has to be a new birth and it's at such a deep and profound level, it happens at the level of the Spirit, and it's accomplished by Jesus. In other words, this isn't something that you can do for yourself. This is going to take the radical work of God in you. You're going to need grace. 
And at the end of that, he, he ends by alluding to this event in uh, Israel's history where the people had grumbled, they're being judged by God, these serpents are biting them, and there's a way out, there's a provision that God gives Moses, and he says, craft a bronze serpent, uh, or craft a serpent, he makes it out of bronze, and lift it up so that when people are bitten, they can look at that and they'll be saved. And what Jesus tells them at the end of it, verses 14 and 15, he says, as Moses lifted the serpent up in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then everything that comes after this bigger point is an explanation of that. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's look at John 3.16 through 21. This is God's Word. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already, because He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Again, this is God's Word. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we're grateful for your Word. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather. We know that's by your grace. We know that you are present and that you're worthy of our worship. And as we open your Word together and we share it together as your people, help us to understand it and give us the grace to receive it and submit ourselves to you. And we also pray for any friends who are just, they want to know how to know you, and they're considering Jesus. We pray that you'd turn the light on, and that you would graciously draw them to yourself. It's in Jesus' name, for your glory we pray. Amen. Okay, so there's, about this passage, a, a couple of little things here. One's sort of a bigger point, one's a lesser point. Um, the, the lesser point is this, by, at least by the time you get to verse 16, out of that conversation with Nicodemus, there's a question, whose words are these? Are these the words of Jesus continuing to explain the situation to Nicodemus? You know, like if you've got a red letter Bible, you know, it shows up in red, the translators think, okay, Jesus is still talking here. Or are these the words of the Apostle John, the author of it, making an explanation after Jesus says what he says in verse 15, and he's expanding on the point. Well, we can't know for sure, and there are these technical reasons that, you know, it's an interesting question insofar as it goes, but it doesn't go very far. So, you know, it's kind of interesting to think, like, how do we see this and how do we see the transition? But the import is the same, right? This is God's Word. It's true. We're going we're gonna to understand it and apply it the same, and we're going to receive it the same. The bigger point is what I, what I said before, and that's what we find in verses 16 and following are an expansion on what Jesus tells Nicodemus. Um, how so? Where he says, if I'm, uh, you know, I've got to be lifted up so that whoever believes in me can have eternal life. And you raise the question, right? Because Nicodemus doesn't have the frame of reference you have or that I have. Well, how did it come to work this way? Because God gave his son. He's here. The Son has come. 
And, 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 and that's what's gone into this. So the Son has come into the world, and what we find in this passage is I'm, I'm going to bring out three things worth considering. We'll just go in order. The very first is the reason. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Probably the most famous verse in the New Testament. And the reason the Son came into the world is salvation. Right? Uh, among the many things that we can say about our salvation, we have to say it was motivated by God's love. Um, for God loved the world. Now, the, the world, world there is not a, a throwaway. We, we, we're going to take it from our open frame of reference, most likely. That would be our normal default. But in their setting, Jew, Gentile, who are God's people, what he's saying is, Everyone everywhere. We're not, the gospel is not going to be restricted. What the Son came to do isn't going to be isolated to one ethnic group. And no ethnic group is going to be excluded. So that he can follow that up and say, God loved the world so that whoever believes in him, regardless of your background, would not perish but have eternal life. And the way it's described there, love is this spontaneous, generous, unwavering love for somebody, not based on who that person is, but based on the one who decides to love, right? That kind of love that's based on the one who loves so well. And there's a little word, so there, God so loved the world. So this is an interesting thing sometimes, I mean, interesting, not so interesting sometimes, about reading commentators and the technical thing. That little word, so, could mean one of two things, and I think it's a distinction without a difference. So in one sense, it can mean to this extent, he so loved the world, this great, or in this manner. He, he did it in this way. He so loved the world. He, he did it this way. It's, I, think it's, I think it's a distinction without a difference. How did God demonstrate his love? In what manner and to what extent? Well, he gave his only son. It's, uh, he, he gave him... It's grace. It's a gift. It's all on the basis of Jesus. And you need to know this, and I need to know this, and we need to remember it every day. That if you would be saved, it's, it's going to come from believing in Jesus. It's going to come from putting your confidence in somebody who can do for you what you can't do for yourself. It's going to be totally on the basis of what Jesus accomplishes when he goes to the cross. There is no third option. You look at verse 16 and you go, without the Son, you perish. Uh, with the Son, if you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. You, there's a share in belonging in the kingdom of God forever. A commentator named D.A. Carson put it this way. said, whoever, and he's expanding on uh, this and, what, and he's surveying what Jesus does in the Gospel of John. He says, whoever believes in Jesus, experiences new birth, has eternal life, is saved. The alternative is to perish, to lose one's life, to be doomed to destruction. There is no third option. The sun has come, and what that does is that creates this why. The road forks. There's this way or this way. There is no third way. There's no third option. And so what, what John is doing clearly here is he, he sees this need to lay out the motive of God. God has demonstrated love. He could have come for another reason, but you need to know it's for this. And the reason you need to know is because if, if he came for another reason, maybe you wouldn't respond this way. But he came for this reason, so come to the light. Come to Jesus. So let's, let's point out the second thing that he points out. So the reason that the Son comes is salvation. A misunderstanding of why the Son came 
is condemnation. Somebody could assume that, and he says clearly it's not that. Verses 17 and 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So he starts and he goes, now, so, so the Son has come, now why is that? He came for salvation. He, he, he transitions to why not? He came not for this reason, but for this reason. And he uses this word, condemnation. Right? He didn't come for condemnation, he came for salvation. And that word is a neutral word. Like, like, you know how our word judge can be used in two different ways. One way can be like judge, judgy, the mean sense of the word, the negative sense of the word. You're condemning somebody. You're judging them. And another word could be like just really neutral. You're judging like evaluation. You know, my, my dad uh, growing up was in FFA. You know, he's, he's good at that. And so part of what he would do, um, even going on into college, was to he would judge dairy cows or judge different kinds of livestock, right? Well, that's a neutral word in a sense. He's just evaluating. He's not, he's not condemning the cow, right? You know, like, no, bad udders, you know, no, bad spots or whatever, right? So he's evaluating. This word is kind of neutral like our word judge, and the way that you know how to use it is based on the context. So in other places, it's really just kind of that neutral way, but here it carries that heavy negative connotation of, condemnation, right? And there are reasons that people could assume that if the Son of God comes, that it could go badly, right? Because they know there's going to be a final judgment. They know that God is going to act in the world. And if He does that, part of what He's going to do in that sequence of events, whatever He decides to do, they would look at it this way, part of that is going to be judging His enemies, judging evil. And so they might automatically assume if the Son of God comes, it's for judgment. Or and this is a psychological thing, and people do this all the time, maybe assume that, you know, this would never be a problem if God just didn't mention anything, like if, if, if He just didn't bring it up. So as though the coming were the cause of the problem. That's not why He came. One of the things that we really have to understand about this is that the condemnation is already there, okay? This is our default without God's intervention, the condemnation is already there. That's already a person's status with the world. God loved the world. That's already a status, a person's status with the world before the sun even comes. One more word that's very important to know. And it's a little word there. In, this, in these two verses, he talks about God sending his son. Send. Now, the root of that word is like our, like, like the word we've come to understand as apostle. Like somebody officially, an official delegate, right? Somebody officially sent, duly authorized a representative of the sender. So we could see it in that setting, apostle. Um, we could see it like, like the modern way of looking at it is ambassador. Uh, somebody commissioned to fully and officially represent his country or whatnot. There's a big word out there, and the word is this, okay? So, so kids, spelling uh, competition, have this one ready. Plenty potentiary. Plenipotentiary, meaning full power. And the word send here, and that's, that, that was used in ancient times too, the word send is the idea that you send somebody as your representative, not just like, I don't know, ever in grade school, do you ever say, oh, you know, hey, buddy, would you go ask her if she likes me? 
Would you go let her? And so in that sense, you might have a representative, but your representative doesn't have, you know, full power to represent you to, you know, to that cute girl in third grade or whatever, right? But there's a level of that that increases, like, full power to completely represent. So that in the ancient world, if a king sent somebody, a plenipotentiary, a delegate, it was so serious that the way you treated the one sent was deemed the way you were treating the sender. And that's exactly who Jesus is. The way that they will treat Jesus is exactly, it's, it's the way they're treating God. They're treating God the way the, they're treating Jesus. And he would see it. So it's a big issue. John uh, 7, uh, 27 and through 29, these people are you know, kicking around the idea, well, is Jesus the Christ? You know, how do we know this? And, and, and so they start kind of debating among themselves. Well, he can't be the Christ because we know where he came from and for, you know, reasons we won't go into. Um, if, if, we knew where he, if we know where he comes from, he can't be the Christ. And so on this theme of sending and the significance of that, because the way you treat Jesus is the way you're treating the one who sent him. Jesus says this, you know me and you know where I come from, Right? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. They don't see it, but that's what's going on. As the Father sends the Son as plenipotentiary, that's who Jesus is. The sent Son, the one with the full power to represent the Father who gave him a mission, not for condemnation, but for salvation. And everything in your eternity rises, rises or falls on him, and make no mistake, while he did not come to condemn the world, uh, but to save it, his coming sets the parameters for how you'll be judged. The difference is whether or not, or, or whether you believe in Jesus, whether or not you put your trust in him to act for you in your lost state because of who he is and what he's done. If you believe, you're not condemned. If you put your trust in Jesus, you are not condemned, which is a radical statement given who you are and what you've done. You just take stock of who you really are. I'm not, I'm not talking made up. I'm not talking unnecessary guilt. I'm just talking about who you really are, just objectively, and, and what you've done. And the idea that you would believe in Jesus, and on the basis of who he is and what he's done, that's why he came, so that somebody with your track record would not be condemned before God in spite of what you've done. But if you don't believe, you're condemned already. And the rationale is something like this. You're rejecting God's sent one, and so you're rejecting God. You're rejecting God. You're, you're in this condemned state already, and God has made a way, and you're rejecting that, that way. All right, so there's the mistake, a misunderstanding, um, that he didn't come for condemnation. He came for salvation. And then finally, the passage wraps up with a picture, and that picture is light. Let's read verses 19 uh, through 21 again together. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does, does what is true comes to the light, so that it may clearly be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. First thing to note, it's obvious, but, it's, but we need to note it. What he does here is he transitions to a metaphor. What is this like? It's like light. Where, when, when Jesus comes into the world, it's like light shining in, coming into a dark place. 
well, what's the, what's the, what happens when that occurs, right? When light shines in a dark place, well, all of a sudden you see. You see everything that's there, right? There's this, there's this deal with reality that emerges, and you, you get the idea of the, the details. As, uh, for people who work in this area, there's, uh, you know, with plants and stuff like this, there's this phenomenon called phototaxis, photolight taxis movement. And, and the phenomenon is this, that plants, as they emerge, certain ones, that the angle of the light, where the light is, what, they, what they'll do is they'll move to the light that gives them life. And maybe you've seen that if you have certain plants that are um, planted in a, in a way that they only get light from one angle. Have you ever seen them, have you ever seen them like grow towards the area that's providing light because it's where source of energy and life. He's using something of this. The image here is something like that, that you're going to be either drawn to it or you're going to withdraw from it, and you're going to have a reason for that. You're either going to be drawn to it because you know the, the light comes into your dark place, and you're going to know, I, I need the life offered there. Uh, you're not better in this case. He ends by saying your works are still carried out by God, still done by God's grace, right? It's still telling the truth about who you are. But you're drawn to it and you, you get the light or you're, you withdraw from it. Um, because, and now why would somebody do that? Because you hate how it tells the truth about who you are. You hate how it's a real mirror into who you are. And that's the real judgment. Hating the good, gracious thing God has done in sending the Son because that meant you'd have to abandon your evil. No way. God shouldn't have that call. I refuse to do that. I want safety in my evil. He will not accommodate that. He'll give you a way through it. He'll give you redemption, but not safety in your evil. Um, so the light reveals the problem. The light is not the problem. That's what people often think. The light is not the problem. What reveals the problem is not the problem. The problem is. As in what actually condemns you. That's what happens when you di- misdiagnose your starting point. The light doesn't make you sinful. It just exposes your sinfulness. Okay? So you see this, like how he walks through it. He says, look, the sun has come. Big impact. Not for condemnation, but for salvation. And the... And the, the force of that is like light shining in darkness. And what you see with that is this reaction, either drawn to it or, or uh, hiding from it. So now let's get to, and I'll use good subject-verb agreement here, what the light, singular, says about you, because the light is Jesus. What does it say about you? Well, it says what you are, uh, whether or not you're a person who will deal with reality. All of it. The whole truth. You know, I begin talking about how this passage touches on your relationship with reality. You know, how do you see the truth? How do you see everything? And uh, what do you do with that? And there is a trauma that coming to grips with the truth creates. For one thing, um, you know, I don't know how reflective you are from person to person and that sort of thing, but it will just on its own create a sense of despair because ultimate self-help uh, just will not work. There's no such thing as ultimate 
self-help. Like, like you can do things to improve yourself, and you should. You should grow and improve yourself and that sort of thing. But to do everything you need to get from where you are to where you need to go, the idea that you can just muster it up from within, that is not within your reach. You will not be able to do that. You might as well start flapping your arms saying, I think I'm going to make it to Saturn. I mean, it's just not going to happen, right? You're just not going to have that ability. So when the light shines, it says something about you. It says everything about you. So what some people do is they, they operate by default in this kind of denial. I, I, I don't want to act like it's there. I don't want to deal with it because it's so heavy. And then what other people, they, they call themselves realists, but they're not realists. They're faux realists. They're fake realists. They tend to think they're very smart. And what they do is they walk around and they go, oh, it's all doom. And they think they're being realist. They think they're being honest because they're like, doom, don't you see this and this and this? And they point to everything that's so bad. It makes some kind of sense because if all you do is think about the severity of life and death and judgment, it's going to crush you. It's going to depress you because it's heavy. So what some people do, there's just this natural thing. What some people do is they suppress it. Just not going to think about it. And what other people do is gnaw on it. Like a, like a dog with anxiety on a bone. just. But you need the truth. You, you need all of it. Um, because it's the truth that sets you free. You need the light on. Now, let, let me address the faux realist. The faux realist disagrees with what I just told you. The guy who thinks he's a realist, but is not actually a realist. And what he'll say is the truth doesn't do that. The truth does not set you free. All I do is see truth. All I do is live in in the light, in the light of reality, he says. That's all I do, and the truth doesn't do that. It tends to crush me. It tends to depress me. Because don't you see how hard it is out there? But that's not true. There is doom, but that's not all there is. There is doom, but doom is not all there is. That's not the whole truth. Doom is there, but it's not the only thing there. Grace is there too. That's true. The presence of the Son is part of the whole truth. That's why He came, right? To explode your realness with the presence of God and the power of His grace. That's true. It's part of the whole. And if you don't know that, whatever else you know, you're not a realist. You're not in the light. and You're not wrestling with the whole truth because the Son has come. And Jesus can position you by God's power to transform you through what He accomplished on the cross so that your works have been carried out by God. In short, God is there. Motivated by love for a world who didn't deserve it to such an enormous degree that he sent his son so that rather than perishing, rather than being condemned, you can have eternal life and be saved and know the God you're made for. That is not wishful thinking. That's putting all the facts on the table. That's, that's integrated reality, right? The severity and the hope, because guess what? The hope is also true. Um, That's the difference between looking around and seeing a good chunk of the facts and looking around with the light on, uh, with Jesus in view. God's offer of grace in the face of your sin and evil and the world's sin and evil is an essential part of the whole. If you want to wrestle with reality, you have to wrestle with that part. That's part of the reality. You don't know the truth without that. You are guessing in the dark without that. You are not a realist without that because it's there 
and because it's more powerful than anything else you're considering. Right? So, so anyway, let's, let's kind of step back for a little bit uh, as we wrap up. There, there's a kind of twisted reasoning that says, if you don't show me who I really am, I don't have to deal with it. Right? I, I, I don't have a problem if the light doesn't come on and show what's really there as though exposing the problem is the problem. Or something else can happen. You know, when the light comes, maybe you could see. And while you see all the ugliness that's there, and it's true, you can also see God's gracious offer of hope in the sun. The light says something about you. The light says, uh, whether condemnation arising from your sin uh, will be dealt with by your attempt to hide, like withdrawing from it, there's this natural impulse because you want to you run from what the light exposes because you hate what the light exposes. You don't want to let go of that. You don't want to agree with God on that. Or whether the condemnation arising from your sin and guilt will be addressed by grace. Remember why the sun came? It's a place in Romans. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The condemnation was already there, but he bore it. Right? The reality of who you are and what you've done, was up, it's, it's occurred, and he bore it. And so receiving the son is receiving the one who sent him. So when the light turns on in your life, it, it is uncomfortable because you do have to come to grips with who you are and what you've done and what's going on in the world. But the great thing about it, and there's, there's a severity, there's doom, there is judgment. But the great thing about it is that God has graciously acted and he was the only one who could have. And he did it to such a great extent. Out of love, he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So the word's simple, right? Believe in the one God sent. Believe in the son so that you can have eternal life. Let's pray. Again, Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you loved to such a great degree and in such a manner that you sent your only son so that rather than being condemned, we could have eternal life. You're a gracious God. We pray that for those who walk with Jesus now, they know Jesus now, that, that we would be strengthened by this truth, that we would worship fully, that we would represent this truth, um, and that, that we would live out of it. And for those, again, who are considering Christ, they would just see how gracious you are in him and believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.